Do you ever wonder um, what it means to worship the Lord when you're reading your Bible and how you worship the Lord when you're reading your Bible? Um, I've known for a long time that worship of God is, is commanded in Scripture and it's instructed in Scripture. And sometimes I find myself at a loss for how to actually engage with God in a way that's worshipful. And um, what I want to do this morning is share some things from Scripture that have helped me worship the Lord. And most of them have to do with the way the Lord manifests himself in unusual ways or, or ways that are very astounding to me. So what I want to do is I want to start in Genesis chapter 1. So get your Bible out. We'll look at Genesis 1. We're going to look at Exodus and we're going to look at Joshua. We're going to look at things that the Lord does to put himself on display that give us reason to stop and pause and marvel at who he is. Now, the first one of these takes place in creation. We all know that God created the earth in six literal days. That's what scripture tells us, and it's a blessing to, to read through these things. And what I find astounding when I read through the creation account, and I read through the fact that God commands light and speaks light into existence in day one, and then he speaks an expanse into existence in day two, is what he does on day three. So we start in verse... Um, Nine. Then God said, okay, so God has created the light. He's spoken light into existence and an expanse. And this expanse divides water from above from waters below. And God says in verse nine, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them, and it was so. So the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. This is marvelous. So here we have the formation of the world that we see. And if you read verses 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, uh, there's no other body uh, in existence at this time. There's no other celestial body, but there is light. And there is light, because God spoke it into existence. So what you have now is you have the existence of light, and you have an expanse, and you have seas, and you have dry land, and you have vegetation. But you have no source for the light. So there's this light that exists, and there's days, and there's nights, there's evenings and mornings, day one, and day two, and day three, but there's no source for the light. And God brings the source on the fourth day. Verse 14, Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. Let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, <clears throat> lesser light to govern the night. And then he made the stars also. Billions and trillions and quadrillions of stars. What I find astounding here that, that just evokes worship and praise in my mind and my heart is that there was there was light that was sustaining the vegetation that was on the earth. There was light that was somehow functioning in the evening and the morning on the first and the second and the third day. And there was no source and no origin for that light, but there was light. And it was on the fourth day that God gave source and origin to that light. And just amazing. And that kind of boggles my mind because anything that I know that, that has light has a source. Mm -hmm. And so for three days in the existence of this universe, God had light, and it was sustaining the vegetation that was on the ground, um, and the light had no source. I, I can't comprehend that, 
And what that does is that gives me reason and occasion to just worship God for being much greater than I can even fathom. I, I can't even picture what light must have been like not to have a source of that light somewhere. And we all watch it get dark when, when the source of the light goes below the horizon. Watch it get bright as you were driving in this morning. So um, that is one reason why I just stop and I pause and I say, Lord, you in your creation have done something that I can't even fathom how that works. So I must just worship you and praise you for being beyond me in all that I can do. So that, that really helps me just begin to worship. It gives me tangible, real things to look at and to praise God. And there's, there's days in, in the month when I read and I just read through this passage and stop and marvel at what happened. So uh, Genesis 1. So let's go to Exodus chapter 14. This is another one where I just marvel at what God does. We all know uh, Israel was in Egypt under slavery for 400 years. God told Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Pharaoh sort of lets the people go reluctantly, changes his mind, pursues them. He pins them in Exodus chapter 14. The army, the most powerful army in the world is closing in on Israel. Moses says to the people in verse 13, Do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, of Yahweh. Then the Lord, Yahweh, speaks to Moses and he says, As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. God tells Moses exactly what is going to happen. Moses has no idea before this what is going to happen. He tells him exactly what is to happen. So you drop down to verse 21. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. There's nothing new here that I'm sharing with anybody, but this is astounding. Yahweh swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right and on their left. When I think of a strong wind that's blowing, I, I think of the strong wind that just kind of blows the water in one direction. This strong wind blew a channel in the water, and dry ground was on the ground, and there was walls of water on the side. I've never in my mind, in my whole experience, seen anything like it. There was no barrier. There was nothing holding it in place. And yet God was accomplishing his purpose of getting Israel out of Egypt so that he could establish the family line that would bring us our Messiah uh, by blowing this water and allowing dry ground to form so that they could walk through on dry ground with walls, the water held up in walls. Amazing. Just amazing. Beyond my ability to comprehend what is happening there. And again, I stop and I just marvel. Lord, you've done something that I would love to have a conversation with one of those people who was walking through that. What was that like? Well, it was probably very, very humbling because the greatest army in the world is just a quarter mile behind you or whatever. And you are just walking through on dry ground and then to see what God did or he just undid all of that. It's just astounding. And it helps me just, again, say, Lord, you are capable of things that I would never think of because I can't imagine them. And so I can trust you in my life with what is coming tomorrow. Um, and I can worship you in my life today because of what you have proven and shown. I want to give just a couple more examples um, that take place 40 years later. So let's advance a little bit. and We'll go to Joshua chapter 3. They've made it through the wilderness. They've made it through 40 years. All of the, the people who rebelled have fallen and they've died. And they're not entering the promised land because they rebelled against God. And the faithful are there. Um, and God is going to accomplish his purpose. 
And so in Joshua chapter 3, they need to cross the Jordan River. The Jordan River is running at flood stage. God in his wisdom has Israel come here when the river is running in its flood stage and they've got all these people and all these little ones, these women and children. How are they going to get across? And so we see that God says, I want you to get the priest and have them go in front of you with the Ark of the Covenant. They will go in. Verse 14, the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark before the people. When those who carried the ark came into the Jordan, the feet of the priests carrying the ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks in the days of the harvest. The waters which were flowing down from above, so upstream, they rose up in one heap a great distance away. And those which were flowing down towards the sea, the salt sea, were completely cut off, so the people crossed opposite Jericho. Next verse, I think, tells us, yeah, the priests who stood in the ark and the covenant of the Lord Yahweh stood firm on the ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until the nation finished crossing the Jordan. God had a purpose. My purpose is that my people are going to go into this land. From these people is going to come the Messiah. Here is exactly how I'm going to do this to bring my people into this land. So this is how he gets the people across the Jordan River on dry ground. They just walk right through. I would love to have a conversation with one of those guys. He said, let me tell you, I, I was through the one where we walked through the Red Sea and I was in the one where we just strolled across the Jordan River. Just astounding. And um, we know the human heart because we know what happened to Israel. A couple of generations later, people forgot what God had done. But this helps me just stop again and pause in my daily devotion time and say, Lord, you are the God who does these things for your people so that they will worship you and praise you and have a reverence for you. Um, that's chapter 3. I want to jump ahead skip over Jericho. We know what's happening in Jericho. It's just astounding to me in Jericho that guys blow horns and God uses the acoustics and other things to, to just level that city flat. Uh, city with a wall to protect itself and everything. Let's go to chapter 10. <clears throat> this is one that baffles my mind again. So Israel is in the process of accomplishing um, the task of taking the promised land or conquering the land. And this is just astounding, what God does. And I don't know if you've ever done this as you're in your reading plan and you're making your way through Joshua. Notice how many battles Israel fights. And notice in all of those battles, how many people from the nation of Israel die in those battles. And except for the battle against Ai where they went in without God's counsel, you'll find that in every one of those battles, nobody died. Nobody died. No Israel died. No Israelite soldier so what happens is Israel made, in, in chapter 9, a, a poorly advised pact with the Gibeonites. And in chapter 10, five kings raise up against the city and the nation of Gibeon. So they're there. And these five kings are described in verse 3 in chapter 10. Verse 5, they show up. Okay, and the men of Gibeon in verse 6 sent word to Joshua, remember our deal, you're going to protect us. Okay. And so here is a, a situation in which the nation of Israel is fighting against five kings. Five kings. All right, and God gives them victory. Um, verse 10, Yahweh confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and pursued them by the way of the ascent and struck them as far as these places. Verse 11, as they fled from Israel while they were at the descent, Yahweh threw large stones from heaven on them. And they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. 
So we're, we're not unfamiliar with hail. What's astounding when you read verse 15 is you see that God has very good aim. <laughs> Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. All Israel returned. So here's this battle, hand-to-hand combat. This is before guns and you're shooting at each other. This is hand-to-hand combat. The earlier verses tell us Israel killed them with the sword. So they were, they were fighting at close range. The hailstones only fell on the bad guys. It only fell on Israel's enemies. <coughs> Again, God's explicit, perfect control, something we could never imagine. When we see hail falling from the ground, it just falls everywhere. Um, God commanded the hailstones, large hailstones, I think it says, large stones from heaven falling on just the bad guys. So you're fighting with a guy who's two feet from you, and he gets taken out with a large hailstone from heaven. That happens to lots and lots of men. More men died that way than with the sword. Again, just God's immense control. But in verse 13, there's something else that's just astounding. Israel's in the middle of this massive slaughter. This massive slaughter. There's so many of these people that there's not enough time in the day to get the job done. So Joshua spoke to Yahweh in the day when Yahweh delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said, O sun, stand still at Gibeon and O moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. End of the next verse. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. What the Lord did there was he suspended the laws of physics. You have, in our solar system, you have a perfect balance between the gravitational pull of the sun on any planet that's orbiting around it and the angular momentum of that that planet that's, that's rotating around the sun. And God just suspended that. He just brought that to a stop. Um, he just stopped it. He stopped the rotation of the earth. He just stopped it for a day so that Israel could finish the job uh, of conquering the land. Something I can't imagine. And there, there's probably more math there Probably more physics there than I, I can imagine. More equations than I, I would know what to do with. It's not a problem for God. Joshua calls up and says, Lord, will you just pause everything? He hits the pause button as easily as we hit the pause button on a video. And God allows his purpose to, to transpire. So what that does is that just gives me more and more reasons to praise God. Um, when you stop and you ponder something like that, I, it's very helpful to take it beyond, oh, that was cool. And that was a really neat factoid of what God did there. But to this gives me a reason to worship him. And we're going to find things like this that are going to amaze us about Christ and about God himself in the next age when we actually behold these things with our own eyes. Um, and so as astounding as walking through the Red Sea and crossing the Jordan and, and observing light with no source must be... Um, equally astounding and probably more astounding things are coming for us in the next age. They really are. They're coming for the believer because he is going to behold Christ and Christ is going to be there in his full glory. Um, and we are going to be with him in the clouds um, preparing to come down and, and reign upon this earth. And that is astounding. And so um, what those things are are things that give us reason to, to praise and worship God. As you read your Bible left to right, you'll just find many, many, many more things like this. I'll just give you two of them. One of them is in 2 Kings 19, 
Hezekiah and Israel are being besieged by the Assyrians. And, and at the end of that chapter, the Lord just slays, the angel of the Lord slays 185,000 soldiers from the Assyrian army. Israel wakes up and their opponent is dead. They're, they're ones who are going to capture them and besiege them and take them. They're all dead. Just amazing. And you can read the story of Jonah in Jonah chapter 1 and chapter 2. How did the Lord sustain a man in the belly of a great fish? Water flowing over the gills, through the gills, for three days. Love to ask Jonah that question. But we don't know the answer. But the, the real point of all of that is God is sustaining that. He sustained that man so that he could change his heart and take him to a great city and preach a gospel that Jonah preached begrudgingly. And, and many, many, many people in that, in that city believed. Uh, so God is doing all of these things to accomplish his purpose. So when you're, when you're reading your Bible left to right, take note of these things and use them in your worship time. This morning we're talking about biblical decision-making and the fallacy of finding God's will. Does everyone have a copy of the outline? Cool. Um, let's read from Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, and then I'm going to pray. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Lord God, thank you for these men. Thank you for their uh, perseverance and diligence in this class. Lord, thank you for their desire to uh, shepherd their hearts well, shepherd their families, have that bleed into ministry. Lord, thank you for their desire to uh, be qualified men. Lord, thank you for their diligence as they approach Scripture. God, is, um, I try to convey what you've taught us from Scripture, what you've taught me from Scripture. Lord, help it to be clear. Lord, help them to um, be able to walk away with at least one nugget that they can take home and that they can use in their home. Lord, in your name, amen. amen. That passage I just read is full of imperatives, and all of them relate to how we walk and how we make decisions. Think for a second about a decision you've recently made. Um, think about a decision maybe you made that you wish you had a do-over on. How'd you go about making that decision? I'm guessing that the greatest thing you've ever done, I'm guessing it was the greatest thing you've ever done, but it probably, or I'm guessing it could have been worse the outcome of that bad decision could have been worse. But there are times when making a bad decision has spiritual disaster. Um, if you guys are here right now, you probably haven't experienced that. Um, but it can lead to ruin. A right decision also has good benefits, desirable ben benefits, things that can lead to spiritual blessing. And decision-making doesn't just impact us, but it impacts our homes. Um, it impacts our ministry, it impacts our qualification, and so the reason we're doing that, this study today, is because this really covers all of the build disciplines, D1 through 5. Um, so going back to verse 17, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We must know the Lord's will. And we should know that for whatever particular decision we're making, Right? Who should I marry? Let me find the Lord's will in that. Should I send my kid to college? 
Let me find the Lord's will in that. I'm trying to have a baby and nothing's happened, or we've lost some babies. Let me find the God's will in what the next step is. These scenarios and all others are important. We don't want to make wrong decisions. And if only we knew God's will before we made decisions, life would be better, right? Is it God's will that you find God's will in these decisions before you make these decisions? Let me say that again because it's kind of a tongue twister. Is it God's will that you find God's will in the decisions before you make the decisions? The answer to this would be obvious if it came from Scripture. Um, And so I want to look at God's word, and I want to see what God's word says about what God's will is and what we should know about God's will. Before we go there, I have a couple of things to tell you. One, this message might change your paradigm. Um, As we look at how we see God's will, uh, this this might just change things. Um, And two, I'm I'm standing on the shoulders of many men who have come before me. Um, I'm standing on the shoulders of the men who have taught this lesson and built before. This is the first time I've taught this lesson. I'm standing on the shoulders of John MacArthur, who read a great, wrote a great book called Found, God's Will. Um, it's good. If you want to go find it, it is an easy read. I highly recommend it. Uh, there's an audible version of it, if you're like me and like to listen to books. Um, I'm also standing on the shoulders of Joel James. Um, Joel James is a good friend of Scott Maxwell's. He's preached here a couple of times. His phenomenal counseling materials online. Um, He's a pastor in South Africa. He actually taught a counseling class in my house probably five or so years ago. And I'll tell you, every single day, I use stuff I learned from that counseling class and the way I shepherd my house, the way I shepherd my heart. Um, Joel James has some materials online about decision-making. And if you go read those materials, they'll sound vaguely familiar after you listen to this message. Yeah. Is there a website? Yeah, I think it's like, if you Google Joel James... Uh, South Africa, it's the first result. But it's like gracefellowship.whatever-south-african URLs are. Um, I'll find it this week and send it out to everybody. Yeah, it's, it's really, really good. Um, side note, he, in, in the counseling, he taught about parenting. He taught about shepherding your house and um, talked about lying. And he said that in his home, he thinks that lying children... Um, are the first things he needs to shepherd in his home because if the kid lies well, he can cover up all his other sins. Mm-hmm. Um, and this last year, I've dealt with a lying child, and that has rung in my head and has impacted the way we've cared for my child. Um, I'll keep her name out of this. But I only have one daughter. Um, but the, um, yeah, and so I just, I, I adore some of the wisdom that Joel James gives, and so we're, we're bringing that to you today. Uh, let me give you a roadmap for what I'm doing. We're going to look at God's will. That's where we opened. We're going to look there. Uh, we're going to talk about some man-centered ways of finding God's will. Um, things, examples, I think I've got six of them. Um, things we've all done, we all do, ways that we just need to protect ourselves from these. Um, they're very rampant here in the world we live in. Um, And then I'm going to put together or show you kind of a six-step process um, to make decisions that's informed by Scripture. So 
I'm going to try to go a little bit faster because the six-step process seems like not what I should, I shouldn't be cutting that. So um, let's look at God's will in Scripture. God's will in Scripture comes in two forms, the prescriptive and the decretive will. Uh, prescriptive is what God has commanded, don't steal. Uh, decretive is decrees that are made by God. Um, in, in decision-making, I think it's even help, more helpful to think of them as prescriptive is revealed, God's revealed will, and decretive is his unrevealed will. Um, and so let's look at God's revealed will, and that's in three categories. These are God's commands that reveal his will. Uh, Matthew seven twenty one. <clears throat> Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom <coughs> of God, but he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. The rest of scripture details what the Father's will is that we must do to enter the kingdom of God. Repent, believe. God has not hidden or kept secret what it means and what we need to do to be saved. Um, that's such a gift. If you think about other religions, they don't know what they need to do to be saved. I have a, a, a good buddy who's Sikh, and we were talking about his religion versus my religion. And he explained it as he's, he's trying to do good enough so that the gods will, will appreciate what he did, they'll notice him, and they'll take him up into heaven. And if he fails, he'll try again. And he'll try again. Um, that, that's heartbreaking. And God revealed what we need to do to be saved to us. Um, that, that's such a sweet gift. And so knowing what God's will is that we can be saved, uh, I just thank God. You know, as you spoke earlier, Scott, approaching God's word and worshiping, just seeing laid out God's plan for salvation is such a great thing to drive us to worship. First oh. Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Here's an example of a revelation of God's will for believers. There's, there's many of these. I mean, it's hard to, hard to go through the New Testament without seeing some commands that are God's will for believers. First uh, Thessalonians 4.3, if you have a Bible, turn there real quick. Um, this is a verse every man in this room should have memorized. Uh, for this is the will of God, your <coughs> sanctification. And he narrows it. In this context, your sanctification is that you abstain from sexual immorality. This is the will of God, your sanctification. God has revealed precisely what his will is for us. He's revealed his mind, and he will tell it through his commands. He's asked us to flee, abstain from sexual immorality. Isn't it ironic that we'll spend hours seeking God's will for a decision, and yet we don't seek his will to be sexually moral? or abstain from whatever sin comes its way. Um, God's will is that we be sanctified. God's will is revealed in his commands to us. The next category, God's broad intentions for believers reveal his will. Let me explain that from scripture. Uh, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
This is similar to God's commands, and his commands reveal his will. This is a more general or broad way. Principles are stated in broader ways that you may not tell the specific action to take in a given situation, but you must live God's broader intent in his, in his revealed will for you, not to be conformed, but to be transformed and to be renewed. The third category of God's revealed will is God's plan um, for human history reveals his will. Galatians 1.4, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he may rescue us from this present age according to the will of God our Father. God's plan for salvation is in alignment with his will. God's plan to send Jesus is in alignment with his will. Um, moving to Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, that plan didn't stop when Jesus went to the cross, but it's continuing on um, into the next age. And it says, He's made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. This isn't just something that's happened in the past, but this is going to include his return, his judgment of sinners, his millennial reign, uh, everything Omri taught us a few weeks ago. Um, this is God's will is still carrying it out and will be carried out um, through that. So God's will is summarized by his commands, his broad intentions for believers, and his biblically revealed plan in human history. That is knowable. God's given that, us that in his word. Um, so when a Christian is trying to discern God's will for his life, does he have these things in his mind? When you're trying to decide God's will for your next decision, do you have these things in your mind? Does this tie to, should I send Jonathan to community college or ASU? Um, should I buy a new car? What's God's will for me in whether my wife needs to work? Um, this, let's look a little bit at God's unrevealed will next. Wow, that's interesting. I have 20 minutes written on my notes right here. That's where I need to be, and we are 20 minutes in. <laughs> but I've got my notes going 75 minutes, so. God's unrevealed will. Let's start in Proverbs. Uh, I think in your notes you've got six of them. I'm going to just fly through those. There's no way you're keeping up. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. That's 16.1. 16.3, commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. Verse 9, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. 19.21, many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. 20.24, 20, man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How can man understand his way. Proverbs acknowledges that God has an unrevealed will or plan for every person. But notice that these Proverbs don't reveal specifically what it is. God directs our paths, but he doesn't tell us ahead of time how he's going to do that. 
Um, Proverbs leaves God's unrevealed will well unrevealed. It's mysterious. So when you're seeking God's will for the decision before you, it is usually this unrevealed, mysterious will that you are after. But here's the question that doesn't get asked enough. How does the Bible direct us to think about knowing the unrevealed will of God? Especially in regards to decision-making. Does the Bible ever tell us, teach us, or guide us on how we can know his unrevealed will in specific situations before we decide? Are we ever just directed by Scripture that we can and must know God's unrevealed will for a specific situation before the decision happens? Is there somewhere in Scripture where it says, go find God's unrevealed will and then make a decision? I couldn't find it. <laughs> I wanted to make sure, because you know I'm teaching this, and I didn't want to have someone stand up and go, what about this verse, and then I'd be in trouble. So I couldn't find it. Like, that's not how Scripture plays it out. You think as popular as the idea of finding God's will is, it'd be all over the pages of Scripture. That's just not there. It's not in the New Testament at all. Believers in Jesus Christ are never directed by God through his word to find God's unrevealed will before they make a decision. Let's look at a few more verses. Um, some examples of people who you may know. Um, you may know these examples. Romans 15, 30 and 30 through 32. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. This is Paul. He wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to see the believers there. He... He asked them to pray. And he knew God had a plan for him in his gospel mission. Notice he didn't say, he didn't say, can you, can you find out God's will for how to get me here? Um, instead, he said, pray that, that I might find joy and have God's will to bring, that God will bring me there. And God brought him there via a shipwreck while he was a prisoner. That's not the way I would have expected to go to Rome if I were a missionary. Um, and if and if you were seeking God's will, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have been like, hey, God, if you could shipwreck me, like capture me, shipwreck me, and drop me off in Rome, that would be the way I really want to get there. Like, like that's just not how it worked out. Um, God had a plan. Paul didn't. Paul had a desire. Uh, when they asked him to stay longer, or let's go to Acts 18, 20, and 21. And when they asked him to stay lo for a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave with them and saying, I'll return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. This takes place at the end of Paul's second missionary journey. And Paul would see them again on the third missionary journey, but he didn't know that at the time. He said, if God wills. God had not revealed to him that he was coming back. Um, but he knew that his steps were led through God's unrevealed will. This is significant. There's no indication from Paul that it's God's will that you know God's unrevealed will for your life. He didn't. 
if anyone knows God's unrevealed will for his life, I'm thinking it's Paul. Um, let's look at James. James 4, 13 through 15. Come now you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Consider what James says about future plans and decisions. Pretty much the opposite of, of what the standard thinking is. James and the rest of scripture doesn't even come close to speaking about future decisions like we hear most Christians speak. Um, if the Lord wills. Not if the Lord tells me I'm going to do this, then I'm going to go do it. It's if the Lord wills. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret, things of the, to the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of the Lord. Um, God's hidden will isn't lost. The term finding God's will, God's kept them from us. He's hidden it. Um, in the closing chapters of Deuteronomy, God revealed some of his will or plan for the broad scope of Israel's history. If Israel obeyed his laws, they would flourish in their new land. If they disobeyed his law, they would languish and be expelled from their land. In fact, God declared in Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, that national disgrace and exile wasn't just a potential development. It would happen. God revealed a piece of his will or plan for the future of Israel. And the curious Israelite was sure to ask, well, when, how is this going to happen? Um, how are we going to be humbled? However, God didn't give him the details. In fact, God had Moses tell his people not to attempt to discover the details of future events. Instead, they were to focus on what he had commanded them to do, and that was his law. When Christians today try to find God's will before making a decision, what are they looking for? Things that God intentionally has hidden. So do you want to go about making a decision the right way? then don't look for that which God says you can't know before it happens. Nowhere in Scripture do we find an instruction or a good example of how to find God's unrevealed will. But Matt, what about Gideon? Remember Gideon? Oh, yeah, thanks. I'm glad you guys brought that up. <laughs> um, remember Gideon with the fleece? Hey, God, you're going to tell me your will. You know, um, That was an example of a lack of faith. Um, what's the book of Judges about? Remember the Judges? Everyone did everything that was something that was right in their own eyes. Um, this isn't an example. This isn't something that's prescriptive. Um, and, it, and it's a good lesson in, in D5 that our hermeneutic will determine how well we approach decision making. Um, be careful not to take narrative and turn it into a command and example by default. Look at the context of the passage and what God is teaching with that passage. <clears throat> Scripture is silent about trying to find God's unrevealed will before making a decision. Where do you think we got that idea? I think we made it up because it's man-centered and we're, our hearts are evil and we are looking at some way to justify our own, using our own heart in making decisions. Um, and not just lining ourselves up with God's word. 
So I'm at 30 minutes and 30 minutes. You guys are going to be here for 75 minutes. Um, that's the first section. That's, that's really kind of a brief summary of MacArthur's Found God's Will. Um, the next section is, is man-centered attempts to find God's will in decision-making. So we've got some examples on, on ways that I know I've gone about making decisions. Um, there's, I think, six of them. The first one, the first man-centered attempt to find God's will in decision-making is the purely pragmatic approach. The key word in that sentence is purely. I'm an engineer. I'm not going to tell you not to be pragmatic. Um, you should see the decision matrix I made before we bought our last house. <laughs> Jenna loved it. She did not love it. Um, but if that was the only criteria we used, um, it would have been a purely man-centered way of, of making a decision. Um, a person that uses a purely pragmatic approach um, gives little or no consideration to what God says in his word. Something I said? <laughs> See again. <laughs> um, <laughs> the pragmatist may be a Christian. He will tell you that the Bible is important to him, but he makes decisions like an unbeliever does. That that's key. Like we need to do things to set us apart. We need to go about decision making. Sets us apart. If the way that we make decisions, something someone that doesn't love God can do as well then odds are we're not doing it right. He'll end up making decisions as if he's an atheist. This person isn't intentionally going against his word, um, but he doesn't use God's word in making the decision. The purely pragmatist um, is taking a, a dangerous path. Um, imagine approaching that pragmatist with counsel. What's he going to say? He's going to say, well, the data spoke for itself. Um, he's not going to listen to others. He's not going to seek out counsel. He's not going to go to God's word. He's going to use a convenient method of decision-making to justify his potentially bad decision. You know, not to disagree, but I think you can make spiritual pragmatic decisions. I think you can use your criteria, spiritual criteria, to make decisions. It doesn't have to be man-centered all the time. Absolutely, and that—that's the even making a decision about buying a house could include spiritual criteria. Yeah, and um, and my decision-making matrix, I've I've handed it out to many people. Most people mock me. Some people use it. Um, but I think the key here is to know that it's purely just pragmatic and not rooted in, in some other truths here in God's word. Well, um, I'm struggling with your term pragmatic then because I think you can be very pragmatic about making things that are not tangible. Expand on that a little bit. Well, if you're making a decision to go on the mission field, you could say, well, gee, that's, you know, I might, uh, my life may be in danger, but gee, that's, that's of most value here. Yeah. I'm going to do that. Yeah, and I don't think that's, I don't think that's what I'm talking about. Um, I think the key word is purely. Yeah. Purely 
devoid of God, devoid of any spiritual rationale, right? Just the thought, okay, this plus this equals this. Ex and yeah, and that that's and I think you can use if you're if you're being pragmatic. I'm I'm an engineer. I'm not going to make a decision apart from from being very pragmatic in it, like just because I'm I'm wired that way. Um, and I'm going to go to God's word, and I'm going to make decisions um, using the process that we've got kind of outlined here at the end. Let me make this point again. You can, make, you can count the cost ahead of time and be very pragmatic about it, and it can be in a spiritual context. Yeah. The cost may be you lose everything. Yeah, and I'm, that's not... Including your life. Right. And that, that's not what I'm talking about here. I don't I'm think. just saying that's pragmatic. Count the cost. Let's talk about that afterwards. <laughs> okay. Starting with your term pragmatic, that's all. All right. Uh, let's move on to the next one. Uh, the next one is the lucky dip approach to scripture. Um, a person opens the Bible randomly until he finds a verse that leads him to the choice he wants to make. Um, an example of this. Should I move out of state? The next morning you open up God's word, you turn to Genesis 12.1, it says, go forth from your land. Yeah, I should move out of state. Uh -huh. God's will for my life. I used God's word, right? Like it said, I should move from the state. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> this is marked by the use of the Bible um, that is just wrong. Like it it's a wrong view of the Bible, a wrong view of interpretation. Um, <coughs> 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to show yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Do you long for your father's approval? Do you want to be approved by God? Um, what gets his approval? Someone who puts their butt in the chair and works hard to understand and accurately handle God's word not someone who opens God's word and says, go forth from your land. Um, some, you, you approach this person, and they're going to defend it and say, well, God's word told me to do this. Um, I'm not going to lie. I've done this. Like I remember clearly a 17-year-old kid sitting there going, am I going to start dating or not? Let me open up God's word. Well, there's nothing on that page. Let me open up God's word. Well, there's nothing on that page. <laughs> like, by God's grace, that was Jenna. <laughs> and we've been married 21 years next week. Um, but it was not a good hermeneutic. That kid, man, if I could go shake him a little bit, things would be better off. Um, however, if you know God's word well, you're consistent with discipline one for years, you don't need to dip into God's word to understand what it says. Um, you'll know it so well that you'll know how and when God speaks to your situation. And I'll talk a lot about that a little bit more. My encouragement here is to be one who knows the Bible. Um, the next approach is the prophecy approach. You consult someone at church that you believe is a prophet, someone with the ability to know future events. You may see a little bit of my charismatic upbringing here. Um, I had prophets tell me things 
they were ignorant because they said I'd be a professional athlete, and here I stand before you. Um, not a professional athlete or even close. Um, a more popular way that we may hear in our circles is God spoke to me. I know it's God's will for me. I feel it. Did you go back and stone those prophets? <laughs> I have no idea where they are. <laughs> But thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> Deuteronomy 18.20. <laughs> Cheater. Um, how may we know the word of the Lord? Um, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is the word of the Lord, a word that the Lord has not spoken. That's Deuteronomy 18, 21, and 22. The prophet has not spoken it presumptuously. Don't listen to him. Don't be afraid of him. He's a fraud. He's a liar. What's funny is that prophet, like, people, people said, oh, that guy's a prophet because once a prophecy came true, not because ever a prophecy did not come true. Um, and so when you, when you ask or use the God spoke to me, like, how often is your heart? or what you feel like God spoke to you, accurate? 100% no. Um, we're being a modern-day prophet that, that isn't accurate. Uh, let me give you an example of where this line of thinking leads. Um, having grown up around where this thinking is everywhere, um, Years back, I met with someone who's living a life that's full of sin. Um, I sat down with her, and I said, you know, I see this and this and this in your life. You're walking away from what God's asked you to be, God's revealed will in your life. Um, you're in opposition. Here's what she said. She said, well, that can't be right for me, because I know the Holy Spirit told me to do this. She was so sure that what she was doing was from God that she didn't trust Scripture when it opposed her. It's heartbreaking um, to see where a simple thing of I got the right feeling can lead you to ruin um, because you ultimately trust that feeling over God's word, God's revealed will. Um, there's only one way, thing to call that decision-making, and that's unbiblical. Another one that's similar but worth acknowledging is the peaceful approach. I just had a peace about that decision. This assumes that God communicates his unrevealed will through a sense of inner calm. Where's that in Scripture? Um, the problem with inner peace is it has no bearing on whether a decision is a good one or not. Let's go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus had a decision, right? Should I go to the cross? God told him to go to the cross. He's praying in agony. Please, God, give me another way. Give me another way. The peace that he had was, or peace was so non-existent in that moment, he was sweating, or sweating blood. Um, an inner peace doesn't tell you whether it's the right thing to do or not. Um, 
Jesus went to the cross without a peace that it was the right decision. Peace after you make a decision, not my will, but thy will be done. And then you go and you have peace because you know you're doing God's will. That's a whole different ballgame. But using peace to make a decision, uh, that's a scary place. Uh, you're trusting in, in your gut. Uh, the, the fifth one, open door, closed door approach. God opened all the doors for me to get this new job, so it must be his will. Or I've heard it, uh, if God doesn't want me to do this, he'll close the door. I think I've said that. Um, what you mean by saying that is if the circumstances make it easy for me to do something, then the decision to do that thing must be the right decision. Or if the circumstances make it difficult, then the decision not to do it must be the right decision. Another one that I don't see in Scripture Arbitrarily, what, what determines an open or closed door? Is your state of mind that tells you whether that door is open or not? Um, going to the missionary, going out to go to the mission field, having trouble raising support, so it must not be God's will. Um, or God's testing their perseverance. Um, if Paul made decisions with the open door, closed door approach. Most of his ministry would not have happened. I mean, he was beaten and put in stocks in Philippi. That's a closed door. <laughs> Riots in Thessalonica, doors closed. Berea, Athens, that door was closed too. It must not be God's will that he goes and preaches the gospel. We stand here today because Paul did not use the open-door, closed-door approach to making decisions. Um, was the door open for David uh, to commit adultery with Bathsheba? The window was. Does God control circumstances? Yes. Yes, every single one of them. But it's speculated to say that certain circumstances mean God wants you to make one decision or another. Since the decision is hidden, is centered within you, it becomes almost impossible for someone outside of you to question it. Um, do you see a theme there? Like I keep bringing up like how to counsel, how to question it. There's a connectedness with the body in making decisions and with other people. And I think there's a good litmus test there that says, can this decision be, be approached? Um, we want to have other people speak into our lives. I'm skipping ahead to like step number three, but whatever. Um, the sixth man-centered approach to finding God's will is seeking signs. Once again, kind of similar to the open door, closed door. Um, it looks for special events or coincidences before making a decision. Uh, the belief is that God will secretly or clearly communicate through an event that will help you make a decision. Once again, pretty arbitrary. Um, I can make anything into a sign. Hmm. I, can, I can justify almost any decision I want to make as well. If we want to justify price, the value of stuff. Um, seeking signs. Um, yeah. 
What, what does Jesus say about those that crave signs? Matthew 12, 38 and 39. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered, An evil, an adulterous generation seeks a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Looking for signs to discover God's unrevealed will, just flat out not in scripture. Not one of these methods is taught in scripture as a method for discovering God's unrevealed will. This is because God does not desire for us to find his unrevealed will before we make a decision. So that makes every single one of these an unbiblical method for decision making. They're man-centered. So how do we want to think about all of this? Um, I want you to, to separate in your mind the idea of finding God's will before making a decision. Um, don't, don't do that. <laughs> it's not taught in scripture. Um, God has, has an unrevealed will for your life. And if he wanted you to know, he'd tell you. And he didn't. He'd, it'd be clear in scripture. And there's so much in scripture that he revealed. Um, it's just not the steps that you're walking in. Um, he's guiding them. He's not revealing them. Which leads us to section three. Um, decision making informed by scripture. The key to decision making isn't finding the unfindable. Um, but it's lining yourself up with God's word. And, and being a wise decider. So the first step. In God's strength, be obedient to God's revealed will, his commands. The commands outside of you. Um, what am I saying here generally? Be an obedient to God decision maker. The first place to start in making a decision is to make sure that when God has revealed his will, that we are indeed walking obediently with it. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Well, I know that. I know that part. God's revealed that. I, I need to be shepherding my heart daily. Um, <clears throat> one, someone asks, asks me, uh, how and why are you in God's word every day the way you are? And my answer is because I hate the person I am and the decisions I make when I'm not. We need to be shepherding our heart. Discipline one is huge in, in decision making. Uh, the next step, also in discipline one, pray for wisdom. Don't pray, God, tell me what I need to do here. Um, pray, God, make me wise. Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. The mind of man's plan, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his staff, steps. The proverb we read earlier. Prayerfully commit your works to the Lord and he will establish your plans. That all begins with you humbly committing your decision making to God and praying for wisdom on how to do that best. 
You're not praying for an open door. You're not praying for a sign. You're not praying for a peace. You're praying for wisdom. Um, I think this is my struggle with going back to the question about the pragmatic approach. So what are you praying for? If you're praying for wisdom, but then you're saying don't be purely pragmatic, but then don't also rely on senses or signs, What's where does that lead you? Does that go to the next question? Yeah. <laughs> Doug read ahead. <laughs> it, it, I, so, yeah, the purely pragmatic approach. Um, well, let's let's talk about the next one, and then I'll, if that doesn't answer your question, Nate, okay. say raise your hand again or okay. throw something at me. Um, The next one is gather information and counsel. Counsel from outside of you. Um, be slow and thoughtful in your decision making. That that ties to prayerful. Prayerful being prayerful slows you down. Um, you don't need to make a decision about something as fast as you think you do. Um, taking your time and seeking counsel um, from people who are experts. People who not counsel from people who are people who will tell you what you want to hear. Um, I have a tendency to do that. Like, hey, I, I'm thinking about doing this. That's a terrible idea. Well, you don't know what you're talking about. Let me go find someone else. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, um, there, there are men in this room that are wise men who have taken the steps you, you're about to take before you and can give you good counsel. Um, and seeking that, and I think that's kind of the um, contrast. Like I have in my notes, Nate and uh, David, I have in my notes, look at this in contrast to the pragmatic approach. Making lists and abiding by the, those lists is very different than making a list and seeking counsel and going, am I weighting this too heavy? Am I not weighting this heavy enough? Am I thinking about this rightly? Am I, am I not? Like, am I putting the right priority on the right things that God has for me in my life? Um, you can, you can be pragmatic about that. You can look at a list and go, I prioritized closeness to church for my next house. Um, and I made that a one. Should I make that a one? Is that helpful in bringing the gospel and helping my family shepherd? Probably not. I'm going to make that important. Um, and so there's a way to be pragmatic and also prayerfully think about what where that pragmatism leads. And also prayerfully um, seek counsel on some of the, the criteria that you're using. Um, <laughs> see, I should have just skipped ahead. Um, yeah, and, and, and the pure pragmatist, and that's the thing, that's, that's what I tried to say at the beginning, is the pragmatist does the, the wrong way of being pragmatic is the way the world is pragmatic. Um, and they don't listen to counsel. They don't seek God's word. They don't ask God for wisdom. Um, they don't seek holiness. Um, if you're doing those things, pragmatism <laughs> helps. Uh, so a really good example of that is um, we were getting to the place where we needed to get a mortgage for this church. We spent a lot of time as elders talking about interest rates, term, down payment, and all of those things. 
Uh, and we had someone on our elder board who thought two weeks ago who's in the banking and lending industry. And so we, we went through and, and itemized a lot of things and weighed them out. Um, but we didn't do them separated from what is our overall purpose here? We want to have a place in a church where people can come and worship and grow and serve and all those things. And we did a lot of analysis. We really did. We checked interest rates and when should we do this? Should we wait? Should, whatever. It, it, was, it was pragmatic in a lot of ways, but it was tied to God's purposes for us here as a church. Yeah. It wasn't separate and just, oh, this is, this is all about the numbers and whatever. But we got some good counsel from two guys in specific. One guy's in the banking industry and another guy's more in the finance industry. It's very, very helpful. Um, we had to have good information because good information is, is necessary to be a steward of the resources that this body gives. Uh, we cannot be a good steward of what this body gives if we don't steward that money well by using good information to, to make purchasing decisions. So we, we had to analyze things well, but it was tied to God's purposes for that. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. That's exactly my point. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. And Matt. Absolutely. And I think that's why the, the first step in decision making is really just to, um, to make sure that you're lining up with God's revealed will to, to desire holiness um, and, and seek sanctification. Um, sometimes a decision may seem like the wrong decision by us and it was there to sanctify us and that was exactly what God said, knew we needed. Um, and so our criteria for good decision making shouldn't be part of our decision-making either. Um, our decision-making should be we want to honor God with our decision-making. Um, and so step four, does the Bible speak directly to this decision? Uh, you know, we, we talk about the unrevealed will, but there's some parts of Scripture where God just flat out says, you, you don't need to be doing that. Like, you know, should I live with my girlfriend? <coughs> no. <laughs> a terrible decision <laughs> it's, like, it's gonna lead you to sin um, should I cook the books for my boss so he doesn't pay taxes well no that, that's not a good decision um, you might debate over which job to take but the Bible says you need to work 
So the decision on whether to work is, is not a hard decision. The Bible speaks directly to that. Um, I have a buddy who finishes an MBA at ASU, and he was trying to decide what to do. And he had a job offer in New Mexico. And in New Mexico, they did not have, where he was going, did not have a great church. And he's like, I don't want to go somewhere where there isn't a good church. So we'll keep putting out applications. And he put out applications and never got another job offer. The decision was, I have to work. It, it wasn't the easiest decision. He had to go somewhere, and he eventually found a good church, and he eventually plugged in. Um, but God spoke to, I'm not turning down this job because I have to work. I have to have a job. Um, the next step, how does the Bible speak indirectly to my decision? Decision-making becomes easy when the Bible says something. Don't steal. It's a divine directive. Whether we continue at a job where you were asked to cheat for your, your customers, but not every decision is clear-cut. The Bible may not directly address your specific decision. Should I make this difficult phone call now or tomorrow? I choose tomorrow. Um, <laughs> but what you'd be surprised about is how much God's word speaks indirectly to things um, should I buy this car or that car it doesn't talk about which car you need to buy but it talks about how you should approach debt the borrower becomes the lender's slave um, don't take out a Ferrari sized car on a Ford-sized income. Um, God has commented about other things about the car. Um, why are you buying a car? Are you trying to impress others? Um, trying to keep up with your neighbor? Um, trying to decide a blue or a red car? And your wife hates red cars? Don't do something out of selfishness. Uh, get the blue one. God's word might indirectly say more about those decisions than you actually think, which leads back to being God's word. Know God's word. Know what he speaks. Don't dip. Know it well. Um, the last step, humbly do what you want. Like, if you've gone through this process, if you're in God's word, if you're seeking God's will, if you're looking at things, if you're seeking counsel, and you're trying to decide whether to get the blue car or the gray car, and your wife likes them both, get the gray one. I don't want a blue car. Uh, <laughs> kind of jumping on the back of what Tom said, what the decision goes bad, if those circumstances, in the circumstances, we need to learn from the mistakes we made. If, you're, if it's revealed later that you made a decision and you were sinful in that, repent. Um, don't do it again. <laughs> like, don't let one bad decision create another one. Um, I know as I was preparing this lesson, bad decision after bad decision after bad decision popped in my head. Uh, good decisions didn't come to my head very much. Bad processes for decisions kept popping in my head. I'm like, man... I really needed to teach this lesson like 18 years ago. Um, things would be better. Uh, but when I see sin in those bad decisions, I repent. And I know that God's sovereign over what happened in those decisions. 
and God was sovereign over me. God was sovereign over those steps. Puny decisions um, don't defeat God. He knew. He hadn't revealed it to me. Uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is where I'll close. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for these men, for their desires to to just seek you in your word. Lord, thank you for um, giving us an opportunity to, to talk about how to honor you with decisions. Lord, help us to be men that lead our households well. Lord, help us to um, flee from sin. Lord, help us not to be tempted by sin in making decisions. Um, Lord, help us be approachable. Help us approach each other. Lord, help us to honor you with our lives. Lord, thank you uh, for sending your son. Thank you for not uh, departing from your plan and going to the cross when that decision was hard. Lord, help us to, to persevere in difficulties and help us to love you more every single day. In your name, amen.